Then all the Vim users cry out and scream in pain. Why? Why have you forsaken us? Greg, this is episode 10, which means it's the 11th episode, but a lot of people will mistakenly think that it is our 10th episode, so uh, we should probably do some yay 10th episode stuff. Shout out to all of our listeners. Shout out to everybody who's ever listened to any episode of The Public Function Show. We appreciate y'all. We've gotten a lot of good feedback on Twitter. We've had people IRL tell us how much they love the show. I don't know. I feel like I've had like one or two people tell us they like the show. Tell me personally that they like the show, which feels pretty good. I know some people have told you that they like the show and they give us good feedback and stuff. So I hear people who like the show but then have a lot of feedback. Feedback is good though. We we like the feedback. It helps us. Uh, it makes us uh, think about things to improve the show. For you guys, we hope that everyone is entertained. Insert Russell Crowe from Gladiator clip here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we we thank everybody for listening to the show. We hope to keep going, keep that feedback coming, keep letting us know that Greg should I don't know what what should Greg do? Should Greg buy some stuff? Should Greg speak into the mic differently? Should he wear like a cape? Should we do a live show? No. Should we be on YouTube? You think? Should we Joe Rogan it and like make a whole video of us talking to each other? No. I think that'd be fun if we had like an actual studio space to do that in. I but mean, we don't, so. if we were Joe Rogan, then maybe. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Joe Rogan is interesting because he's got the, what I would call like the quintessential podcast studio set up. He's got a big old table with a bunch of mics around it. It's like a dining table. He's got a bunch of little figurines. I think that's one setup that people use. And then the other setup is what I would call the, the living room setup where they have like a couch. That's like so a chair weird. on the side. What if I what if arms. I sat in like a chair and interviewed you like like I was a like a late night show? Yeah, like a late night show. I don't oh know. God. I think that you're a more interesting guest than me. I think I serve the function of the host. Mm. Like I'm Jimmy Fallon, I laugh at everything that you say. And you serve the function of the guest who has all the interesting things to say. Uh, I don't know about that. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's both of us. Maybe. How do they do it on like radio shows, like historically? Like how did like Howard Stern's setup is kind of weird. Like he's got like this his little booth all the way over here on the side, and then Robin's like up here and like a thing, and they're like they're really far away from each other. It seems like I don't understand. It's like a futuristic show, and you'd imagine them recording that like on a spaceship. Like, yeah, but that show's been around for thirty years. I mean, he's been doing that ever since I can remember. Yeah, but I think like Joe Rogan has it right. That's that's the right way to do it. Everybody yeah. just sitting around a table with really good mics and good sound in the room. Yeah, the dining room style. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think that makes sense. The pond thing is weird because you have like Howard sitting in like a like a old recording booth. Well, he comes from radio. He comes from a radio background. Yeah, and that's what they had back then. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure he's just used to it. But you know, you could switch it to like the Joe Rogan experience. Probably, I maybe. I don't know, maybe it makes him feel less comfortable. Joe Rogan also on occasion has like 
four or five guests in the studio at the t- at the same time. Like he'll have uh, before a big fight, he'll have like a pre-fight show. We'll have him, uh, Brendan Schaub, and like a couple other people. He'll have like four people in the studio, and they're all talking at the same time. So his studio has to be set up like that. Most of the time, it's just him and one other guest, right? Or him and two other guests. But sometimes he has to have room for everyone, so it's different. The only one I watched was the Elon one, which was very good. Oh, yeah? I watched the YouTube stream. I feel like Joe Rogan show is the only show that I'm like, let me watch this on YouTube. I, I don't subscribe to his show in my podcast player. I usually just watch it on YouTube. I think he gets the visual element of a podcast episode right because they have like a, a screen too where they look at stuff. Well, he'll say like, hey, bring up a picture of that person or whatever. And they'll, they'll look at the pictures. They'll talk about it. But he's got like a producer and like all kinds of stuff. So one of these days we'll get to that point. One of these we'll get there. I'm trying to see if what the fuck with Mark Maron, if they show uh, his studio. Oh, his studio's his studio's fun. It's literally his garage. Yeah, but I, I can see him interviewing Obama, but they won't let me go to the image. Let me see if I zoom to 500%. Yeah, it's literally him in his there garage with a bunch of stuff around, but he's got the same setup. He's got the, the dining table type of setup. Yeah, his his office looks like his home office that he just has papers and notes. And like albums and stuff. Every, everything. There's yeah. just Coincidentally, uh, Mark Maron uses the same microphones that Joe Rogan does. That's that's something that I would know totally. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're pretty popular. The, the Shure microphones, they're, they're pretty commonly used in podcasting. I have heard of this company. Yeah, they make microphones. Um, the ones we're using are not quite at that level, but we'll get there someday. Yeah. Greg, so, what is our what is our topic today? What are we what are we discussing? I think we're talking about dev tooling. Dev tooling. Dev tooling. That that seems like a very wide ranging topic, Greg. What uh, what do you think falls under the dev tooling umbrella? Mm. I mean, I think I I don't want to get into like. Uh, Dev tooling being your coding editor or things like that. Which what if it is, I want to talk about that, Greg? That should be a different podcast. That should be a and, whole episode. Yeah, and I suggested the topic, and uh, you agreed. Okay. So, and it wasn't. It was. Remember, we said we were going to do a whole episode about editors. We just argue about what editor is about good. about why you should actually use v- VS Code. You Microsoft hater, you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that dev tooling is. Basically, everything that's set up in a project to allow you to build and deploy, eh, let's ignore deploy because that gets into DevOps, just build for production, for dev, for local, like whatever makes it run on your machine. So Docker would fall into that. Shell scripting, Webpack, Gulp, Grunt, if you're old school, old school, uh, things like that. What about ESLint? Yeah, like anything like that. Stylelint, ESLint. TSLint, shout out to my TypeScript users. Sure, TSLint. Uh, the choice of using TypeScript itself, I think, would count. Ooh, interesting. Because it's, it's going to dictate how you, like, how you daily build your code, configure your code, write it. You're going to use different Webpack plugins. You're going to do all kinds of different stuff. And yeah. then I think probably also... 
would be like setting up unit tests, whether or not you use Puppeteer, but I wouldn't really go there because that's a whole other topic. And yeah, testing then, is its own thing, but I do agree with you. I think it falls under tooling. Yeah. Because it kind of, it can impact how your files are laid out. It yep. can impact uh, your Webpack setup. You can determine when they run, like do they run on save? Do you have to run an actual task to run the test? What happens if the test breaks? Stuff like that. Yeah, whether or not you use Wallaby, that's considered tooling. And that's, Ooh, Wallaby's a good one. Yeah, and then probably Prettier too. Prettier is interesting because Prettier kind of can be a thing where it does the same thing that ESLint does, where it just kind of keeps you quote unquote spell checking inside of your thing, or you can build it out all the way to where it's like a uh, like a commit hook into Git. And you have a whole step just for the prettier, which would help. I mean, there's a there's a story that I have that actually prettier would have helped. But we'll get into that as we talk about more of this stuff. So, Greg, yeah. what 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 are the the things that we want to think about when we're talking about building and dev tooling and stuff like that? Hmm. I think the first the first thing that I would say is that you you should consider your tooling as your number one thing that you do when starting a project. No, n- number one. Well, next really. to like choosing the technologies, but that usually is already given, uh, defined, or you've already done some level of research to figure out what you want to do. Like, are you going to use React? Yeah, it's probably already known. Are you going to use Vue for this particular project? Sure. Are you going to use PHP? Whatever that is, those are already in the project very, very early on, probably at the planning stage. But then the minute that you actually sit down to start writing code, the first thing that I ever do is set up the project, set up the folder, set up the GitHub repo, set up the Webpack config, all that kind of stuff. Set up ESLint, set up Prettier, set up StyleLint, argue with devs about whether or not StyleLint should be in there, whether or not ESLint should be in there. TypeScript all the things. Or if you need TypeScript, set up TypeScript. Yeah, um, so you're saying that the, the tooling stuff should be Kind of at the level of when you actually like start a GitHub repo, like that early in the yeah. process, right? The first person, whoever whoever is in charge of creating the repo, which is usually the lead dev, the principal engineer, the tech director, whatever word it is at whatever organization you work at, they're probably going to set up the project initially. Sometimes what'll happen is that someone will create like a proof of concept, like a senior dev or like a mid-level dev or just someone else will create a proof of concept project and then that will become the project. So when I have things like that happen, I'll take their proof of concept and then I'll overhaul it with all the things that I expect to be there for a project. So I'll add, if it doesn't come with Prettier, I'll add it. If it doesn't come with ESLint, I'll add it. Things like that. So I always make sure it kind of conforms to like a something that I would expect to be released. And the, I think the biggest thing that people miss is production builds. Mm. Yeah, that's and something then. that I, I've forgotten about quite a bit because I'm very much like you. It's very easy to fall into this rabbit hole of oh, it works on localhost. The localhost is the only thing I'm worried about, and then it doesn't work on anything else, and then there's a problem. Yeah. So I agree <laughs> with you that, that that's a step that should be architected carefully as early in the project as possible. Yeah, I agree, and I think there's. There's a there's a lot of things that people have done like um, what is it called uh, 
Gatsby, the thing we talk about all the time, and I just forgot because yes. it's the weekend and I'm not thinking about work. The Gatsby has a Gatsby build by default. Like it's in the project. A lot of projects have that. They'll have a production build concept. But what I found with like a lot of projects is that a lot of not like Gatsby as a project, but like your project that you're building, that isn't all that you need. You don't just need Gatsby build. You'll probably have to override something. You'll probably have to add something. You'll have to add more to Webpack. You'll have to set up CDN considerations for the CDN sometimes. You'll have to, um, I don't know, just so many other things. So don't assume that just because Gatsby has Gatsby build and it builds for production that it's going to work. Yeah. It's very hard to. It's very hard for something that is off the shelf like that. Which, to be fair, Gatsby Build is very, very good. Does a lot of good things. It's very hard for something out of the box like that to cover all the cases in every kind of project. Mm-hmm. Right? There are almost always going to be project-specific items that you'll need to build into whatever process that you're using. Things like minification or any kind of things like that where there's a a step that is taken that is specific to a project and is not necessarily common to other things. We've run into that quite a bit on a couple different things. It's always something different and that's kind of why things need to be thought about and taken care of at the beginning. Having said that, Greg, what are some what are some common things that you set up typically on on a project at that at that stage at the beginning where you're thinking about your tooling, you're thinking about these build processes of how can I get my genius front-end developer over here who only cares about his local host to actually build something that works in production? Uh, the, the Probably the key things that I look at first would be the folder structure because I'm very particular about the way that I uh, structure the folders. I always like to make sure that... So go, going back to like create React app and how a lot of people create their projects. A lot of the times these days, people will just create an uppercase named file for like a particular component. So they'll just say like components and then there's a file in there called widget.jsx with a capital W because it matches what it looks like when you import it in the in the, the other parts of the app, the, the pages or whatever glues everything together. So they'll end up doing that and then if you're using style components, You'll have the CSS at the top of the file, then you'll have the JSX, and then you'll have whatever functions or helpers that you need if it's a class component or it'll import things or whatever it does. So that file ends up becoming like a self-contained file, which is very similar to like Vue. So Vue has the .view files that have these three, well, it used to in 2.0, I don't know what it is now, but it has these three sections of the file that are defined in markup where like these are your styles, these are your JSS, or JS, and this is your HTML. And those three things look very Angular-like in a way because you have the template, you have the styles, and you have the, the actual JavaScript, the class. So people are kind of going that direction where there's one file, but I think one of the key things you have to think about with uh, tooling and setting up things is that if, if you're going to have unit tests, you're either going to have a unit test file sitting right next to the component. So it'll say widget.jsx, and then it'll say widget.test.js or jsx, whatever. So you'll set all those two files up, and then what ends up happening when you have 47 components is you have 47 files right next to each other 
plus 47 tests. So you have, you know, 90 whatever files. You have double the amount of files. So what I usually do is I'll make sure that every component is in a folder. The folder, because I'm traditional, will be lowercase with dashes. It won't be capital. It won't be like widget with a W. It'll just be widget. And if it's like the super widget, it'd be the dash super dash widget. And then inside of that, you'll have the JSX file. You'll have the test file. And then if you're using style components, the JS, uh, the styles might be in the JavaScript file or they could be in another JavaScript file that you import from. And then this sounds like it's a little bit extraneous because you have all these extra files. But in reality, one of the key things you have to think about with tooling is that when you tell Jess to like run your tests, you have to say, you know, look for every file in this folder that's a .test.jsx, this extension, right? And if you, you can do that either way, but there are certain cases where those glob type lookups for files are a lot easier if it's in a folder. Yeah, and they're a lot easier sense. to exclude things. So yeah. You can say, take every test that's inside of source, but then maybe ignore for some reason the API because it's being tested with, maybe it runs a different test suite. Like it has its own NPM run API tests and that runs maybe some unit test with Jest and then it also runs like some kind of... Uh, I forgot the name of the tool, but some kind of like where it actually mocks the tests, which Jest can do. But there was another, uh, there was another library I used to mock unit tests. Maybe it's not needed as much anymore with Jest. But the point being is that you can then segment certain parts of the app by folder, which you can kind of do if you had your API in a folder and then the components in a folder. Technically, yeah, one would argue that you could still do that. But I just find that having the fold, the component living all within its own folder with all of its own things is much more useful for when you want to like say delete that component all the all the parts of that file go away so it's kind of like a moot argument cuz that would happen too if you deleted the file in its test but it just becomes easier to manage a project that maybe has 100 or 150 components and 50 pages more easily if they're separate yeah that makes sense if you ever have set up a gatsby project and you go the route of just having one giant components folder and everything's an individual file in there. And each one of your pages is an individual page inside of a pages folder. Then you just have giant folders and they don't have any sort of indication of what's what and it becomes kind of a mess. So I agree with you. I actually like that pattern as well of having component-based directories and throw all the specific stuff because... As we learned last week, I am house CSS modules and that pattern of directories works really nicely for that because in your widget folder, you've got index.jsx, you've got index.styles.module.css or SAS or whatever you want to use there and you've got your test file and it's all kind of in one place for that specific component. It's just a nice way of organizing things. Then also... You can go one step further from there and within the components level directory, you can have subdirectories, right? You can have global components like button and put that in there and know that you can have even another level of organization at that point. And it can also help in projects where you do need to have a very distinct 
separation between global type components and non-global type components. So that really helps in that sense too. Yeah. The other one that I'm trying to Google, that's why I was clicking my keys, trying to look for is um, you also, where is where is that? You also need, um, if you're using any kind of, what is, you'll remember, what is that program that the library that allows you to preview the components in a browser? Storybook. Yes, thank you. So one of the things that I've noticed is if you use, like say you have Storybook and you have tests and you have components, if you go the very, very traditional way of creating a folder called tests, which makes it very easy for the tooling to like hit this folder and be like, all my tests are there, right? What you end up doing is you end up structuring the test folder very similar to the way that you structure the components folder. So then you'll end up saying like source components widget, JSX, say you did it that way, then if you don't put the test next to the widget, which is actually easier for the globbing when you're finding the files, you'll say go put it inside of a folder called test widget dot test dot JS yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it looks exactly the looks same exactly as your the same. component pattern. So now you've you've duplicated your yeah. your component directory. Now add one more. So then you say you have Storybook. And then you're like, usually with the way that Storybook used to recommend you did things or the way they showed like a very simple example, there's a Storybook folder and in there is the books, the Storybooks. So then you'll say widget.storybook.js or whatever it is. Now you have three places where the folder structure yeah. is du- du- duplicated. So if you put things inside of source components, and then the files, so you'll have the storybook, the test, the styles, and the actual JavaScript, you'll end up having only one place where that, that whole entire component exists, minus its references. So if you delete the component, you're probably going to get some JavaScript errors because some other files are importing it. But you know, at least the, all the files actually exist in one place, and then you can just Command-Shift-F, you know, search everywhere for the name of the file and the import, and then you can remove it. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm a fan of that pattern. I think I've, I mean, we've used it quite a bit. Now there, projects that you and I have worked on, projects yeah. that I've worked on solo. It's, it's a pretty solid pattern. There is one disadvantage, though. So if you use something like, because uh, I've done this quite a lot, if you use Adobe AEM, which is a com- really big content management system, when you set up, so this is like another one of the weird tooling things you'd have to do, but if you set up a watch task inside of your project for uh, AEM, there's this library that some guy made. I want to find it because I've used it so much. Is this our I, boy Cinder Source? <laughs> no. Uh, it's AEM Sync, and it was made by, where, where, why do they not show you? Uh, some guy named Gavoja. Michael Kochel is his name. This guy made this library, and it is so smart and so ridiculously cool and simple. But basically what it does is it uses um, FS Watch to watch files that change in a folder. And the folder that it's watching happens to be this really, really long path of where AEM keeps its components. Like oh, AEM yeah, yeah. has tons yep. and tons of folders. There's the one that has the root of your app. It can be programmed to watch that folder and whenever a file changes in that folder, it'll actually sync it to the to AEM CRX, which is its data store for files and content and everything. So it'll just sync it right over. And the cool thing is, is you can have essentially live reload or at least live sync with AEM, where AEM usually expects you to run Maven, clean install, pbuild, all this 
command. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, live reload is a thing that is, I think, part of our build tools as well. Yeah, yeah, live reload. The problem with this one, though, is that if you live reload, I had this problem. If you live reload AEM uh, on it like a timer after it syncs the files, it'll crash. Oh, no. Because it's in the middle of adding this file to its CRX, does a bunch of stuff in the background and like getting it ready, rebuilding a bundle, doing some things. And if you're like, oh, I'm going to refresh it right then, it'll crash. Oh, no. So oh, no. eventually. Um, there's other ways to do it that I don't want to get into because they're AEM specific. But um, what it'll do is it'll sync the files over. So what I'm getting at is that one particular way that you can set this up is that you put the source code for... So I guess this kind of gets at like another fundamental uh, decision you have to make. So if you're trying to integrate a front-end app like React or something like that with something bigger like Laravel, AEM, WordPress, really anything, right? There's, there's two ways to do it. One way is that you put the source code for your JavaScript app at the place that you would put your normal JavaScript within, say, like WordPress. Let's go really simple. So you put it inside of WordPress's theme. You have some JavaScript files. Typically, those JavaScript files are not built with Webpack. They're not bundled, right? Because we're talking WordPress is 10 years old now, 15 years old. It was just straight JavaScript files that would run on DOM load. They're ready to go. They had jQuery or whatever. So if you do that and you put those files there, the unprocessed files are actually next to where WordPress thinks its processed files are, right? So then you'll end up having the theme, the JavaScript, but what's actually in there is a bunch of files that are useless to WordPress because they're all ES6 and JavaScript has no concept of how those work unless they're bundled, right? The other way you can do it is you can take those all of those source files, you can put them somewhere else. So you'll say like outside of the source themes, whatever folder, you'll have some other folder in your project called front-end. And then that folder is being watched. Let's just go back to the gulp days, ignore Webpack. It's being watched, it's being processed, and the files from that uh, front-end folder are being synced over to the actual place where WordPress thinks they would be, themes, whatever, whatever. So what I'm getting at is there's two things that I'm talking about here. One is that you have to figure out where you put the files, the the raw source files, because as we know nowadays, JavaScript is not... Just JavaScript. It's, it's like, not just JavaScript anymore. It's like a thing that has to be built and handled and whatever and dealt with. So you put those files in one place and then you build them into the place that whatever you're using thinks they're going to be. So if it's Laravel, they would go into the static assets or the static folder, I think it is. Whichever one that PHP ignores and just says, hey, you know, deliver all those files to the server, right? Or to the client. So you can do that or... You can actually put the files there and build them in place. But the problem with that is going into the second side of this coin is that if for some reason those files or that folder is being deployed to the server directly, you have your raw unprocessed source files in your themes folder. Yeah, you don't want that. Nah, maybe it doesn't matter. It depends. I mean, it, it increases the page load. It increases, well, page, only if they're rate, ref- at least. Only if they're referenced. So they'll be on the server, but then nobody would. Nobody's calling for them. No one's calling for them, so it doesn't increase the page weight. But it it increases your space on 
your hosting provider, if yeah. that matters. I don't think it does. But the point being is then those files go there. And in the case going back, backtracking to AEM, they're actually in the CRX, the raw, yeah, unprocessed source files. You definitely don't want that. So you can ignore them with AEM sync. You can say, you know, but ignore syncing these source files. But then you have to sit there and set up that rule of include, exclude. Exclude these from syncing, but include these from syncing. And that's where you start to get into like, you can iterate this out over like anything you'd ever have to configure. You're always doing a combination of like ignore these files, but include these files. But hey, wait, wait, when these files get included, don't include that file. Or it just, it's not as simple as like Gatsby build. It ends up becoming like you have to set up all of these individual tools, you know, prettier. ESLint should ignore, like for instance, just going on that same vein, ESLint should ignore the built files. But it yeah. should be running rules on the unbuilt files. Yeah, that's true. So there's another one. Um, the tests should most likely would ignore the built files, but should run on the source files. That that's dependent on the tests. Um, and there's also like prettier should try to run on the unbuilt files, not the built files. Um, if you're using an editor like IntelliJ, not to get too much into editors, IntelliJ should be told to ignore. The built files. Otherwise, it's going to try to syntax line process and error check every one of those built files that are like webpack bundles that make no sense. And they're to minified you. and they're, they're just minif- gross. And and then like IntelliJ is like, man, what are you doing? And it should just be ignoring those files. But what I'm getting at is like the delineation between what is the source and the destination files is important, and it really depends where you put the files. Which is one of the reasons why if you're setting up unit testing, they always imply that you should put them in a folder called tests because it's very easy for the test runner, Wallaby, whatever it is, to say, I'm just going to run whatever tests are in tests. So it matters where you put the files. File setup matters, guys. Yeah, File and setup, I'm, setups matter. I'm still 100%. Uh, I have learned over many, many projects that the best way to do it is to have as less, as least friction to the system that you're using. So... If you're using Laravel and Laravel now has this ability to build files itself, it has like a webpack type thing called Mix. Now, by default, Jeffrey Way built it, I think, for Laravel 5. And it's pretty cool. But what its goal is, is to make webpack less confusing for backend devs. So they're like, you know, I know how to, I'm learning how to write Vue because Jeffrey Way has a really cool. Uh, course called um, LaraCast. It's like a website that I used to subscribe to, and I did a ton of Laravel work. Um, that all those things in there, te- they now teach you how to do Vue and how to integrate Vue into Laravel, so that you can have a much better front end for your Laravel backend, uh, and you can build more complete websites. And Mix kind of glues that together. There's a way that PHP knows what is being built in Webpack, and vice versa. Well, not really vice versa, but it just it integrates really well, and it yeah. builds into the right place. It puts the files in the static folder. It you know it knows that the source files are over here, and then when you deploy that to Envoy, I'm pretty sure it ignores the source files because it knows those are what Mix is using because of the based on the structure that they've defined. But when you think about tooling, they've set their folder structures up a really certain way to make it so that Envoy works and that uh, their deployment system can build your mix files for you because they have like, a, I'm pretty sure they have like their own CI tool now 
where it'll take your Git hooks and then build your web uh, build your mix files and push them to your website. Like they're building this whole really interesting uh, pipeline for getting Laravel apps deployed. That's very interesting. It is, but what I'm getting at is that they have defined or prescribed a process for that to work, but that doesn't always work with things like if you want to do much more complicated Webpack stuff and Mix doesn't have a plugin for it, you have to then get down into the actual Webpack file and start changing things. And I've just always found that the more that someone gives you uh, when you start your project, like the more that Gatsby gives you, the more you're fighting it. Unless they've thought no, of it. Maybe. And maybe. I, I understand what you're talking about there when you say that in terms of having to fight the default setups for things like Gatsby or things like Laravel. But that just goes back to the, the age-old question of uh, configuration versus not configuration, right? Like this is this is a problem that has been a problem since for since web dev was a thing people want a certain amount of configuration but they also want flexibility and those two things a lot of times are at odds with each other and it really depends on what project you're doing right so gatsby i think has helped in a way in a sense that it takes care of a lot of the base level cases for you but they've been able to do this thing where they've built out an ecosystem of plugins and they've built out an ecosystem of things that uh, give you the flexibility to accomplish the things that you're talking about. I don't know if, if Laravel is quite there yet. It sounds like this tool that they're building and their other tooling that they're building is getting there, but they're having, they're probably running to these growing pains of like the early stages of an ecosystem where you don't quite cover enough of the cases for people to, to take you seriously. Uh, but you're starting to, and you get there, and there's kind of a critical mass that you have to get to before that tool can really be considered like, hey, this ecosystem is super flexible and it handles all of my cases. Like, you should really use this. Uh, yeah. Gatsby, I feel like, is pretty much there at this point. There, There's probably some other edge cases that they probably don't have as much coverage in, but there are a lot of things that you could hypothetically build a Gatsby app with, and there's going to be a plugin for you to cover that. So, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is correct. Like the 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 example of like they have to work through this and they have to build an ecosystem. Yes, but I, you haven't used Laravel a lot, so I'm going to let you slide on that one. But they've been building that for like ten years. They're to the point now where Laravel builds has unit tests has. Everything that it needs, like the libraries are so good and they added Mix and now Frontend is so good and Vue integrates with it really well to where they're actually building like hosting solutions and the ability to deploy it and the ability to one-stop set up like a system that runs on Docker that like builds it for you. Like they're really far off, like along. They've been building this stuff for 10 years. So, but I get your point. Just to add that, just to clarify for the listeners that like, Laravel does have a lot of these tools. The examples that I'm using are not any like knock against any of these particular tools. It's just if you asked them, you know, why did you do it this way? They say, well, it works for 90% of our users. Yeah. And that's the thing. So like Gatsby's build tools work really well for getting your files from being source code to being something you deploy to S3 or Netlify or something like that, right? 
But what I find, at least with the kind of configuration and projects that I have to do, it, that doesn't always work. Like I've had issues with, we talked about it a while ago, like I had issues with the, um, the, the pathing where you could like put Gatsby in a folder if you say a client wanted you to. Maybe not recommended, but maybe a client wants it to live in a folder. Uh, for the, whatever. Like a public folder or yeah, the, the, the source? No, like the prefix path, like the public folder of the website is a folder. Oh, like a folder on your, okay. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and they're not providing you any ability to do that with the correct solution, which would be Apache or Nginx yeah. would say like this thing's in a folder and whatever. But the point is the even if Apache or Nginx tells you that it's in a folder, the program itself, the manifest in Webpack has to know that it lives in a folder. And Gatsby has an ability to do that, but because of the way that CSS works, it doesn't really work with CSS in certain cases. So it's like there's always something that I don't understand why I come across all of these really weird situations, but I always come up on something where whatever someone built doesn't work for some reason. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying whatever they built is wrong. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that I always find the edge cases. You're just edge case magnet, man. Edge well, case machine over here. That's what it's like working at an agency. Like that's, you have a lot of. I mean, that's how it works. Yeah, you have you a lot of a like, lot of different projects. Yeah. You work on a lot of different things with a lot of different people asking for a lot of different things, and then you run into stuff like that where Gatsby is great and beautiful and it works beautifully, and then well, oh, it wait, works. I don't know where the yeah. CSS. Is. It works beautifully <laughs> if all you're doing is deploying it to Netlify, or if you're like we kind of got over this last last week too. Like if you're just building a simple blog or a simple website or a portfolio site or even like a landing page for a product or anything like that that's just a simple static set of pages, it works great. But you know what Gatsby was when it started? A static site generator. So it makes perfect sense that it would work for like creating, you know, Albert's portfolio and there's a home and about, a contact page and on there there's a bunch of components. Like that's what it's designed to build. But try taking Gatsby and build a subscription website for a product that integrates with GraphQL and, you know, has charging on Stripe. Data jujitsu. Data jujitsu. You know, you have that kind of problem. But either way, getting back to tooling, like the whole point is just to consider as much as you can, consider where you think it's going to go. And I would say my best advice would be within the first week of a project, set up your proof of concept, set up your folder structure, set up your CSS building, set up your all these things that we're talking about, your unit tests, make sure that your index file, that even if it's just a proof of concept with like a hello world, can be tested. Wallaby's configured, which by the way, Wallaby is very, very simple in how it's configured. If you've never used Wallaby, it's like this amazing tool that whenever you, whenever it's on, whenever you turn it on, and it works directly with VS Code and IntelliJ and Sublime and all these things, whenever you turn it on, Whenever you change a file, it'll automatically and literally, I don't understand, inside of a supercomputer, it runs your unit tests, spits back a result immediately. Visually inside visually of the line by line. It's, line by it's line. pretty wild. Yeah, we'll have a link to that. It's uh, not free, but it is totally worth the money. Wallaby is yeah. great. If you're really into that test-driven development setup where you're really keeping an eye on those tests and building code to those test specs, then Wallaby is a lifesaver and it'll it'll exponentially speed you up yeah. in your dev time. So definitely, definitely worth that. We'll have a link. Yeah. And like you would you could one could say like, well Jest automatically runs files and it does a really good job. You just say Jest watch and boom, it's watching the files. Whenever I change something, it runs the test. It does it really fast. It shows you the result. 
The problem is you have to look at a console. Yep. Parse the results and be like, what is the error it's talking about? Oh, it's on line 47 of this file? Literally with Wallaby, it's like you have the test on the right pane of your VS code, and on the left pane, you have your code. And the minute that you change something on your code on the left, I'm showing them visually, you can't see. The minute you change something on the left, boom, the tests run, and then there's a line of a failure on a test, or well, vice get, versa. It also has the, uh, the red light, green lights. Mm-hmm. So these little indicators, literally line by line in your actual files, where it'll show uh, which line is breaking a test. And then if you're in your test file, it'll show which mm-hmm. which test is actually breaking, like which it block is actually breaking. So really, really neat tool. Definitely check that one out, guys. Yeah. And what I'm getting at, though, is like that tool is not, uh, it's actually not that hard to set up. It's just to, by the nature of how tests run and how Wallaby runs things really, really fast and in this cache and it does all these things, it has to be set up a certain way so that any file that's referenced by a test is included in this little mini server that he uses to run the test. Yeah. So he's like taking these files, putting them over here and running it and then sending you the results back. The thing that's running your test is not actually using the files that are in your project. It's using a copy of them. Yeah. So it's syncing them over and running them and then going back. That's with why the results. it's so fast. That's why it's so fast. It caches the files so it knows when things change. It caches the test so it knows when no file has actually impacted a certain test and just says that one's still successful. Whatever. Um, so all of that happens, but setting that up is really complicated, and uh, it, it really comes down to like where your files are, where you you know where they're referenced, what your tests are referencing, what your source code is referencing, and then we're going to save it for testing. But there's the whole concept of like mocking things and making sure that things that can only run in a browser can run in Node. There's all that, and I'm going to skip that. Um, so there's all of that kind of stuff, and. You know, if you go to Wallaby's like support repo and you look at all the comments, 95% of them is the guy who created it who's crazy because he has a real job too. I think he works at uh, at um, the guys who make IntelliJ. I'm pretty sure he went there. JetBrains? Yeah, JetBrains. So he has a job and then he also runs this project either on the side or on behalf of JetBrains. I don't know how they're doing it. Um, he just answers these questions and he's like, oh, you forgot this file. Send me a copy of your project, set it up in a repo, and I'll fix it. And he just fixes it like all day. And 90% of the time, it's the same kind of things that are causing it to not work. So either way, setting it up, uh, running through all of these cases up front in the first week of your project, making sure Wallaby works, making sure your unit tests work, making sure Webpack works, making sure you can build it for production. If you're using Docker, setting up Docker for which is a whole pain to set up Docker for um, like a front-end project. Like if you need the Docker container to actually run the uh, hot reload server, like that becomes a, a problem. I mean, they've, I think they've gotten it better now with the, with the Node uh, Docker project examples and stuff and the, the containers you can pull. But either way, like all of that stuff was once and maybe still is hard. But getting all of those tools to work together cohesively is really important. And the great thing about that is if you're going to take that project and do something very similar a month later, you already did all the work. Yep. And that's why like whenever I set up a project at work, people are like, "How the heck did you set all that up so fast?" It's like I've done it's it about 10 plate, times. Bro. Done it like 10 times. Boilerplate. Maybe, well, it's not that's the thing. That's the other thing I want to get into, but um it's wanna, boilerplate that you wrote. It's yeah, custom I, boilerplate. I don't I don't believe in boilerplate. Oh, I do not. Maybe I, maybe boilerplate is not the right. It's yeah. uh, like we built a when we first started using Gatsby. We built a 
uh, a Gatsby setup that we like. This was back in the V1 yeah, I days. Yeah, I have it on my I GitHub. still have it. I have a... Uh, I actually translated to V2 recently, so I've been using that as well. But there was a whole set that we liked, right? We had an ESLint config that we liked that was not as insane as the Airbnb one, where right? we had a CSS module setup that we liked. We had a organization with uh, SAS files with a distinction between global and component-specific stuff. Like those mm-hmm. kind of things, the things that we've been talking about today with your file structure, your build processes, all that stuff. Like you were saying, once you do that once you can kind of use that as a, a flexible template that does a lot of the setup stuff for you initially and gives you the ability to get up and running on a new project very quickly. You it, can. It's definitely worth yeah. doing it. No, you can. And and I have uh, boilerplates, like example projects on my own GitHub that I've done that I've set up. And I usually do it not because I know the, maybe the next project that I set up like a week later would use that boilerplate. But if I come back to it in six months and need a boilerplate, I don't use the boilerplate anymore. I set up one from scratch. Well, the idea is that, so this is also kind of a gray area too where the boilerplate will work again for 90% of the cases that you might run into, but it, it might not be, it might not work for everything and you need to keep it updated, right? So when Gatsby went V2, a lot of stuff that we set up on our initial mm-hmm. Gatsby template uh, no longer applied, like the CSS module setup. We had some crazy thing with like post CSS and we had to yeah, they, do the loaders in like a certain order yeah. and there was a lot of stuff there, but all that stuff was taken care of in V2 and it's just, there's Gatsby source yeah, SAS and it all V2, just nicely. Because V2 fixed great. it. Yeah, well, I mean, they they, they see what happens because we had a, I had a conversation with the guy who created Gatsby about SAS in the repo and in, in, in his repo, and I'm sure he took all of that and other comments and other people's opinions and then just fixed it. Yeah. But my point is, is that when you go like a week later, or say like a week later and you go to create a project, you're fairly certain that everything that you were doing around that time is still basically valid. Unless you're, you know, you're keeping up to date on things and like say Babel 7 came out and you're like, okay, well, I know I need to upgrade to Babel 7. Let me do that. But the divergence from what worked a week ago to what works now is not very it's not very different you know you have to maybe add babel 8 or maybe update a couple packages when you're starting over whatever you also learn from boilerplate to boilerplate you're like i you know i did this really bad on this project i'm going to fix it in this project you can go back and fix the boilerplate but i tend to never have time to do that so i'm like i learn these concepts of like setting up CSS modules, setting up whatever, whatever it is, you know, we're talking about. I learned those concepts, and then when I set up a new project, I just quickly apply that concept to this project, and then I'm constantly iterating and making it better. But I don't base the project that I start even a month later off the boilerplate that I had a month ago. Well, you could just have like a living boilerplate, correct? Yeah, but then you're just spending time making boilerplates, and you're not doing work. Like I go, what what I end up doing. And I'm probably an edge case, but what I do is I'll end up working on like a Laravel project for a month or whatever, or I'll, and then I'll work on maybe a WordPress project for like a day or two because someone needs my help, and then I'll work on a fully front end React project for like six months, well, like three months, and then I'll go back and I'll work on something with Laravel or I'll work on like I'm always jumping around with technologies, so I can't really just be like. I'm going to build this like really perfect React boilerplate and just keep using it because I'm not churning out like simple 
React sites every day. I'm always doing something different. That's completely different. Yeah, that's true. You are edge case machine over here. But you know, one of the things that that's taught me is that I don't rely on boilerplates, and I never rely on someone else's boilerplate. I even dislike Create React app because it's too boilerplate for me. Uh, create React app is pretty lean. I eject days. literally every time it's, I use well, it. Well, okay, so. You eject not because the boilerplate itself is bad, but because you run into the limits of what the boilerplate can handle. But and that's the thing. The boilerplate options that you don't like. The boilerplate. That's a, that's a preference thing. That's not a structural thing. No, it's literally a requirement. The boilerplate is designed to take a website very simply. Like their goal is to make it so that you can take React code, build it on dev with live reload, hot module reload, all that cool stuff. And then on the other end, they want to build that code to work on production. So if you took those files and dropped them on a web server, they would work. That's their goal. But in my world, you end up having to deal with lots of other things. How does React integrate with Adobe? How does React integrate with the CDN? How does it work when this happens? How does this happen? Whatever. There's all these extra things. And I don't know. I just I don't I don't use boilerplates. So Boilerplate hips are over here. Well, it's not that they're bad. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, they work for like they're designed to work for ninety percent of use cases. But I've probably rarely, if ever, found any case that I've ever done for work where the boilerplate worked one hundred percent. Yeah, that's true. I think that 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 is a common common story amongst the developer world that. You run into that quite a bit, so yeah. I think that's a good point. And I think the positive way of looking at that, uh, rather than like just saying boilerplate suck, which I don't agree with, I would just say that you have to really what this comes down to is you have to understand what the boilerplate is doing, and the only way you can do that is by building your own boilerplate. Building a React project from the ground up makes you understand what Create React app is doing. If all you're ever doing is churning out projects where you know you're like craw create whatever project. I don't know, NPX, create React app, whatever, and you're just up in projects all the time and deploying them or you know, giving them to clients, you'll never know like why those things work unless you have to. But in reality, I find that it's better to understand how all the tools work, to understand how Webpack works, which is a, itself, like you could write a dissertation on Webpack. It's Webpack so complicated. is hard, yeah. It's complicated for a reason, and the things that it does are crazy, and the way that it works is crazy. It's one of those things like if you use React and you're like, okay, I I understand that it renders really fast, but why does it render really fast? Shadow DOM, Shadow reconciliation, DOM all, all these things, yep. right? It's the difference between understanding that it's very fast and it's what my client wants versus it's really fast because of reconciliation and DOM diffing and the Shadow DOM and all these things. It's the difference between understanding those two things. So when you use Create React App, you might understand this is this thing webpack is behind the hood and it's going to do and it's going to build stuff and i'm going to have code versus i can actually write a webpack plugin if i needed to for whatever reason which i have had to yeah to make a string into this other string yeah i mean sometimes like and sometimes people would argue a set of feedback you'd probably get is well your requirements are wrong but great the client <laughs> doesn't give a shit if your requirements are wrong like they just they really want what don't. they want they just want what they want they don't even understand what you're the they reasoning why they you're don't saying. even really know what react is so like they don't well, really care so the way that you explain to react to them is it's going to help me build the thing that you want 
they you might know, understand yeah. the benefits because other if they're like a, a high up technology director, tech lead, a CTO at a company, they're gonna they're gonna pay sort of attention to the industry. Yeah, maybe. They're gonna talk to their buddies who are like, you know, I'm the head of like, I don't know, said company like Uber, for instance, and they're like, well, we just rebuilt our entire front end architecture in in React, and we saved ourselves, you know, ten. 0.10 milliseconds load time on everything and car you know car ride sales were up by 80% because the app was faster or whatever. Maybe. Like that's the kind of stuff that these CTOs talk about if you're talking with a big company or they don't know and they don't care. One of the yeah, two. That's true. But say somebody at a company did hear that React is cool, they're going to be like, okay, use React. Or I've heard Gatsby is cool, use that. But then you have to figure out how that works with what they actually want. Yeah. And... That's where tooling comes in. That's I where think. tooling comes in. That and understanding all the tools. That's cool. So, Greg, we've let, let, let's let's follow this line a little bit here. So, we're setting up our project. We've got all, all of our directories and files set up. We've got some of our build tools set up. But what's what's the next step in our in our build tooling kind of tool chain here? What's the next thing that we want to think about when we're setting up a new project? So assuming everything that we've been harping on for a little while is taken care of, you've solved all these things, everything builds correctly, everything, you know, when you build it for production, it works. I would say the next thing that I would think about is actually deploying it to a real server, production server. Like Something make, that's as close to your production server yeah. as you can get, right? Yeah, at least, at least getting it, like, say... And this where it kind of gets into like maybe next week's topic about deployment and DevOps. Let's just ignore that for a sec. But you you have to say like, I know for a fact that this project is going to run on S3, right? So then maybe you set up a test project on a you know your account with a free tier. You set up an S3 folder and you deploy it to it and you be like, did it run? Great. Maybe you don't worry about DNS. You don't worry about SSL. You don't worry about all load balancing, whatever, everything else you would ever need to think about. But you're like, yeah, it runs on S3. Yeah, does the page show up? Does the page show up? Is that shade of blue on the logo the right shade of blue? Yeah, I mean, that's probably a guaranteed. But yeah, exactly. You would make sure, like, does it work? Does it look sort of correct? Is it what I want? Is it there? Great. If your site is going to run on Nginx, maybe you deploy it to a Docker Nginx container and be like, did it run? Does it work? Because what you'll find is when you get to the actual point where it's on production, that's where you find whether or not, you know, the the configuration you set up for building for prod actually works. After that's done, I would start to look at like page weight, it, assuming you have content. Like if at this point we're talking, it's within the first week, you don't really have any content in there, so you have no idea how well it runs, right? But you can check things like Lighthouse. You can say, you know, how what what is its Lighthouse score? Which is a it's a tool that I think Google made to basically yeah, it's Google's. Uh- Basically, a page score yeah. tool for and mobile. It's for mobile, and it's very good. It tells you exactly how many customers you lose if your page is too slow. Yeah, which I think that can that's something that you can take to Mr. CTO man who doesn't understand what React is and explain to him exactly the importance of of page weight and page speed and why yeah. assets can't be twenty megs a piece. I mean, early on, we before anybody was really doing a ton of React, we sold. I sold React to some of the people on our team by just showing them how fast Lighthouse runs and how fast it runs in, uh, 
what is that term for um, when it's like a web mobile app? There's that term. PWA. PWA. That's the Good second call. time you forgot. I what know because it's whatever. <laughs> Every like create React app creates PWAs. By Everything is going to be PWA pretty soon here because people are not happy with the App Store. People are not happy with the Play Store. Everything yeah. is going to be PWA. It's going to be fine. But like th- these tools build for PWAs by default. But it's like if you explain to someone. You know, this. Let's just say you're trying to sell a rebuild to your. You work at a company. You're trying to sell a rebuild to your marketing company. You just show them the lighthouse score of your Backbone app or Angular app from ten years ago. Yep. And then show them the lighthouse score for a proof of concept of a React app. Yep. Running as PWA mode, and they're like, "Wow, that thing is like a ninety-nine or a hundred percent, and this thing is like a 12. Yeah, and it'll literally say to them in the score, it'll say. You lost twenty percent of your customers because your page is too slow. Yeah, you lost thirty six point four percent of your customers because your page is too slow, and you should have some sort of conversion statistics of, oh, if I have a hundred people hit my site, then two of them buy something. Well, mm-hmm. okay, if I just lost twenty percent of my page hits because my page is too slow, well, you just lost fourteen point six sales. Yeah, exactly. and you put a dollar on that. Yeah, that's a language that any CMO can is going to speak. So. Yeah, and then you're going to have to explain like, oh, well, you know, over the course of one year of running this new project that maybe costs a million dollars, you're going to make back two, and then you hope to God you're right. And your dev time, theoretically, should be less because you can dev things faster. Yeah, assuming that you, that's the thing, assuming that you structure your, because this is the fallacy of like rebuilding. So a lot of people will say, we have this website, and this is one of my pet peeves, so just hold on for one sec. But people will say, you know, this other website we had before is really, really bad. It's really hard to maintain. It's got really bad code bases. The CSS is not managed. It's really slow. It's really, maybe it's slow, maybe it's not. Whatever. Just like the experience of developing for it is annoying. So they're like, cool, we're going to go from that and we're going to build a brand new structure that is so cool that everybody's going to want to work on it. There's all these new tools, Hot Module Reloading, Webpack, React. It's going to be amazing. Style components, all this stuff. What you end up having is that people think that if they go from Project A to Project B, that all of a sudden their code life, whatever the word for that is, their experience. experience, Developer DX. Developer experience. That's that's actually what it's called. Is going to go way up. But the odds are, the odds are that it will. It will go way up because the tools are just better, right? But the problem is, is that people assume that just because they're starting over from scratch, that they're not going to make the same mistakes. And what I've learned from working on React and the data jujitsu stuff is that sometimes, you know, Angular was simpler or Backbone was simpler for a developer to understand, right? That's true. It's less of this, what the heck is this thing? Yep. It got JSX building into, why am I doing inline styles? Why am I writing or inline you know, clicks? Why am I using onClick again? Like all these things that React brings, you're like, okay, well now I have to learn all these new things. And yeah, when I like really grok this stuff, the DX is going to be very high. But in the meantime, while your team is trying to grok the new technologies and build this thing, they're going to make technical debt, and they're going to make things that lower the DX perception. That's true. And then That's you're going to end up learning curve. Well, I'm not saying anything bad about people because I've literally admitted that I've done this many, many times. You end up trying to create a new project that is has a higher DX score, is faster, satisfies marketing, makes it so that you can build things quicker, you can iterate faster, you can deploy things faster, whatever it is. All that stuff happens, and 
then you hand off that project to, like, say if you're like the construction worker, you come in and you build all this stuff, then you hand it off to the team. If the team doesn't know as much as the construction worker or the construction worker was much more uh, like complicated than it needed to be or over-engineered things, which I often do, then the next team that comes in won't understand what you did and they won't understand how to maintain it and they'll start doing workarounds. So I had this particular project that I didn't build, but there's this project that we have at work that started with Backbone, had everything built with Backbone views and everything, By the time the project was done, they were building just straight jQuery components. Yeah. Not even for like just mastheads or simple things. Like everything on one particular rebuild of the page was just jQuery. Yeah. Because they were tired of how the limitations of Backbone or the limitations of the eventing system created a much more complicated way of coding. But at the same time, when they first built the other system, they were like, this is the way to go. So they went from having this really complicated event-driven backbone application, which we then used a very similar process to that on another big client, which I won't name names, so another really big client, except we use Marionette. But you had the same kind of event system problem. And this was before React came out, so there wasn't this one-directional prop-based rendering situation. 1600 BC, guys. It was, you know, five years ago, whatever. 1244 BC. So, you know, you go from that to the other project, which was arguably, I felt, the second project had a higher DX score than the first project. But, you know, that first project is now new parts of it are on React. So it technically has a higher DX score. But that project is so easy to work on because it learned from a project before it that was using AEM and React that was very, or AEM and Vue that was really complicated improved upon that and then made the new one. So the DX score went up. But my point is, is that if you think you're going to go from project A to B and B is going to be immeasurably better than A, it's probably on average going to be better, but not amazing. It's going to be project C that's going to be dope. Yeah. But by the time C comes out, there'll be something new. Yeah. And then you're going to be like, let's try that new thing. And then you're back in the circle. So this concept of like completely rebuilding and having the rebuild really improve every aspect of a project, going to the next one to improving every aspect of the project, and then just keeping using that one as a template over and over again doesn't really work. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Maybe it will with React, because I have a feeling React's sticking around. I mean, I Unless think React will stick Facebook around falls off for the planet. five more years at least. I think it. it's a very... The only thing that I think is going to trump React is going to be Web WebAssembly. Web components. Well, native WebAssembly. WebAssembly has, I think, an uphill climb just because it goes against everything the open web was, right? Like you can't you can't open the inspector on WebAssembly and see what it's doing. Yet. I mean you have the company I mean, who makes no, well, the no, inspector. The, the idea behind mm-hmm. WebAssembly is that all that stuff becomes it just becomes a blob and you can't really see what's going on. So it becomes like the when you're looking at Chrome and you're like, what is this function? It's like native function. You're like, what the heck is that? Yeah, what is that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. My but, point, the real micro point, is that the company who does the inspector is the company who makes V8. We're talking about Google here. Google's the the head of the organization that runs V8. Is also the head of the company that's trying to make WebAssembly. So I think they're thinking about it. Maybe. I think maybe. they are. I don't know. I don't know if they are. I'm not. I'm not promoting WebAssembly. I'm just saying that the next thing that comes that's really going to like be way better than React is going to have to be something that's way better at. 
Everything. Some other aspect of web development because React is pretty freaking good. It's got to be 10x better. That's the thing. People don't understand is that the the eras of development don't go from like one thing that is your your stasis to another thing that is 10% better. No, the next thing has to be 10 times better. It has to yeah. be a thousand percent better there'll before be little, people move over. So Yeah, there'll be little projects here and there that come in and say, oh, we're better than React, you know, but... I don't know if they're gonna be. I don't think so either. Like Vue is pretty good. It's just a different way of thinking about things. Vue but if is you good. if you like yeah. Vue, Vue is good. Um, if you're an Angular person and you're looking to move away from Angular, then Vue is a good step from that. Uh, we always talk about like the spectrum of web development. Your big three: your your Angular, your Vue, and your React. Angular is like does this Angular thing over here on the left, and then React does its reacting over here on the right, and Vue is like literally right in the middle of both those. It has a little bit from column A and a little, little bit yeah. from column B, so it's worth checking out. Yeah. So what you're saying, Greg, from what I'm getting from what we've been talking about is that thinking about your tooling and thinking about your build processes has very little to do with the actual code that you're writing for this stuff. It's more about concepts and thinking long-term. Well, maybe not. Maybe long-term is the wrong word for it, but thinking critically about how code is going to be written on your project, right? How do we build processes that are streamlined enough and get out of your way in order to take this code that our developers are writing and build it into something that we can actually deploy to production. Like these are more concepts than a specific package or a specific uh, tool that we're using to do these things for us. It's, it's more about structure and it's more about when do things happen, where do things go, rather than what tools we're using. So do, would, you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think you nailed it. It's about it's about concepts. That's totally the best way to put it. It's not about the tools, the packages, or the way that it's built specifically. Like whether or not you use Webpack or you use Rollup or whatever is not really relevant. It's the concept of like I am bundling code. Yeah. So I think that's fair because you can take those concepts across many projects, across many boilerplates, and you just understand how each part of the system works. So yeah. I think that's a good way to summarize it. Yeah, a lot of that stuff is going to come from experience. Uh, work on as many projects as you can, learn from them, and and take that information and build that into your future projects, folks. Yeah, and be inquisitive. Don't just accept that, like, like I'm going to back on to create React app again, but don't just accept that it's the perfect way to build stuff. Which don't just use it, boilerplate. It can be, but, you know, maybe try to figure out what it's doing. Try to build your own. Try to, you know, build a project without create React app. If all you ever do is build them with, with CRA, try one time just building it from scratch. That's a fun weekend project. Setting or, up Webpack and two weeks. from scratch. Or, or two weeks. Two weeks for Webpack. Or two months, whatever. That could be a long one. It's a good learning experience, for it's, sure. It's hard, but that could be a good one. Yeah. Greg, you did so well last week, and you came prepared with a pick. I'm almost scared to ask you if you have one for this week. Dun, dun, dun. I actually thought of two. Do you want to hear us. about a TV show or an electronic? Wow. Can, 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 give them both. I think this okay. is a monumental occasion to have both. I don't know if I've talked a lot about it, but about The Expanse, but I've been watching that for about two months now because I only watch when I exercise. Have I talked about that? The Expanse. I think you mentioned it once briefly before. This was, is it wasn't on a pick, though. Amazon Prime videos. It's correct? on Amazon Prime, yeah. But it wasn't. I've never used it as a pick. No, I don't think so. Okay, it's a great show. I think you should tell watch us, it. Tell us more about it. Uh, I don't want to give it away, but it, 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 basically it is a sci-fi show about 
the future of our solar system, but it's like, I don't, I think they did say the date, but I don't know, but it's in the future, but it's not one of those futures where like humans have, are now able to like fly to Alpha Centauri or whatever. It's like, we're still stuck in our solar system. You know, people have, have not gotten past the radiation belt around the solar system or they have, but it wasn't very useful. Like they haven't traveled between stars. Right. Oh, so Humans went to Mars, colonized Mars, and then Mars was like, you know what? F you, Earth. We want to be our own thing, and we want to terraform Mars is like their goal. So Elon Musk went to Mars and said, F off, Earth. I'm on Mars, and I want to terraform it. It wasn't Elon Musk. I'm just saying someone like that. Yeah. So like, we have this grand vision for what Mars could be. And then before that happened, Mars and Earth were like joined together in their quest to explore the outer solar system. So they sent probes and people and you know, established uh, mining stations in the belt. And those people are essentially like, they're not really like slaves, but they've never been to Earth. So if you imagine someone was born in the belt. They're native Martians? They're native, yeah. There's people that are native Martians, there's native Earth, and there's native people that were born in the belt. There were immigrants to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> they were immigrants to Mars. And then, well, but then their grandparents, 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 grandparents were born were born on Earth, and then they were born on Mars. So it's like, imagine this person who's on Mars has never been to Earth. Yeah, they're, immigrants, pers- they're immigrants to Mars. That's I suppose. I, I hope that you have figured out that this is the premise of the story, Greg. It's an allegory about what really makes us humans and what really makes us one human race and these false mm-hmm. tribes that we divide ourselves into. I hope you have seen this. I yeah. You've been talking about it for 30 seconds. I've already figured this out. So Well, I just like sci-fi. So anyways... They go there, they do all that stuff, they have this quintessential conversation about humanity, sure. And then the people go to the belt, and then they're born in the belt in zero-G, and they've never, or artificial gravity, and they've never felt Earth's gravity. So the people from the belt can't survive on Earth. Can they survive on Mars? Maybe, because Mars has less uh, Less gravity. gravity. But they definitely can't go to Earth without taking like medicines that strengthen their muscle, their bones or whatever. Oh, yeah. So like when the Martians go to Earth, they have – so probably the Belt people could never go to Earth. But the Martians can go to Earth, but they have to take this like medicine. I don't know, whatever. So the point is is that the Belters don't feel like they're connected to Earth at all. And the Martians don't – they're connected to Earth, but they're like at odds with each other. It's like Russia and America or whatever or China and America. You yep. know, they're kind of against each other. Yep. And then the the people on the belt are like the pirates, just like off in the waters, like we're not attached to anything. And they're all just trying to figure out their way. And I guess to your point, the whole premise of the show is that something comes that challenges or, or um, makes the entire human race at risk. Oh, man. And they have to band together, the three of them, oh, to man. figure it out. And the belters as the little redheaded stepchild are never like accepted. Even in that moment when the world, when the potentially everything is ending, they're not really involved. Oh man. But Mars and earth become buddies for a moment. Cause they have I don't to. Know. It's a good show. That sounds good. What's my, your other pick? My other one is my new keyboard. We've been alluding to it. I've been, I was waiting for about a month for it to be delivered. Cause it's it was been a, a while. Pre-order. Yeah. It was a pre-order and it took a long time, but I got the ducky one too. And I love it. It's really good. That's actually the model name, the Ducky One. Two. Ducky One was the original model name, and it's the second one. It's the second generation of the Ducky One. 
Yeah, it has a detachable USB-C. Uh, it has the Cherry Silvers, which Tell us are about like these silver. These are new switches. They're new switches. They're like the Reds, but they have less travel, so you don't have to push down as far. They actually don't go down as far as Reds. One thing I disliked about the Reds was that they they would interact. The whole point of the Reds is that when you click them. They, they don't tr- click. trigger a click very well. They don't. They don't they click. Don't actually, click. Yeah, that's one thing. They don't actually click. But I would never buy blues. So whatever. They don't actually click, but they activate the button that you pressed very early on in the press. But then they still have so much travel. So like you could push it down and imagine that at like twenty percent of the click, it triggers an A for pushing A, and then you can still push it down eighty percent more to bottom out. Yeah, to it's bottom out. The actuation point is very early in the travel on reds. Yeah, so all that extra travel doesn't matter because you've already pressed the key. That's true. So what silvers are is the same thing as a red. They actuate at 20%, but they have 40% less travel or whatever. Your bottom out travel is very very high. Yeah. So now it feels like when I'm, I mainly use it for gaming, but I have used it for typing too. It kind of feels like you press the key and it's almost like one of the Mac keys where it doesn't travel as far and it clicks right away, but it's still tall and it's still a mechanical key. It's it's pretty good. I just, I typed on it very briefly here, and you do notice a difference uh, in bottom out travel between that and even a traditional red. So I think it accomplishes what yeah. that switch is designed to do. So we'll have a link to that. You bought it from mechanicalkeyboards.com. Mechanicalkeyboards.com. Their website's kind of uh, funny looking. So you're like, oh, well, maybe they're not re- like respectable. And then it took so long to get the keyboard. Because so. you, you pre-ordered it, right? I pre-ordered it, but they said it was going to ship January 15th, and it shipped dis- February 15th. Yeah, those pre-orders can be... Which is not their fault. They can be optimistic. Well, it's a mass drop type situation where like they said they're going to get it by a certain date, and then they didn't get it to a much later date. So it's not really their fault, but I just think the way that they handled it, like if... If the pre-order is going to slip, then you send an email and you say, oh, we haven't received these from the manufacturer yet. Now your release date is the 20th. Yeah, and Ducky and they never is did that. an overseas-based manufacturing company, a very high-quality yeah, overseas-based really, manufacturing company. So that just yeah. a- adds some uncertainty to those processes. But we will have a link. Uh, definitely check that out if you're a keyboard person. You and I are starting to be more and more, more and more keyboard person. I'm House Cherry Blues. No. And your, which is, <laughs> it's basically the Montagues and the Capulets over here, with the reds and blues. Like they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum, but yeah. I'm all about the blues. Yours are like the traditional blues, like the clack, keys clack, that people remember clack, from like the clickety, clack, clack, the sixties. Mine is like, clack, 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 people clack, are like, clack, all right, we get it. Clack, 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 clack. But the, the reds are like, yeah, we, we understand that those keys are cool and the switches are amazing, but I want them to be like faster, not make a click and be quieter. They're very, yeah, they're very uh, light and they're very fast. So they're uh, very popular among gamers who need very quick actuation. Yeah. I, I have noticed that this keyboard, I think so did my previous. So I've been, I've gone through a couple mechanical keyboards. I had a Corsair. Which was good, but it only had uh, it had non-standard keys, so I couldn't buy keycaps for it, and it was only a red lead. So I don't know when I bought it, I was like, I'll take red because you had red or blue. Chose red. Yeah. Red started to annoy me, um, and blue annoys me too. If you, that's the only way your keys light up, right? It kind of annoys me if I'm like they're only blue, right? So this time around, well, the last time around, I got an RGB Mionix, and. The, they're $180 keyboards, but I don't think they're that good. 
uh, I did not like it. You press the space key and you're like, this is garbage. So, well, they they use stabilizers that are pretty common for pre-built keyboards of this day, especially at the level of like a Corsair or Mionics. Mionics actually hasn't done that many keyboards historically. They had one before that I remember typing on. It was called the Zybel 60. It had cherry blacks, mm. which are just a heavier red. They're, everything is the same about the red except the actuation forces, I think, double. Yeah, the, uh, that might be nice because the just plain reds, the actuation point is not, you don't have to push very hard. I would, no. would appreciate a harder yeah, uh, that's one of the reasons I like the blues is for the really loud clicky clackiness. And also they are a bit heavier. They're not super heavy. They're definitely heavier switches out there, but they are uh, heavier than reds or silvers, blacks or silvers or what have you. So, yeah. Um, and the other thing was the, the Mionics was, was a RGB. So it would like change colors and it looked really cool and, I don't know. It's it's decent, but I also wanted a TKL. I did not want the the ten key anymore. I wanted a thinner keyboard. Yes, I've been telling you about this for a I long know. time, haven't I? Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. The listeners out there, it's 2019. Get rid of your full size keyboards. You do I not mean, need a number pad. I use it occasionally at you work. You don't need. A number I do pad. when you I type don't, numbers. You don't need a number pad. I, I don't type need numbers. It. You don't need you it. You don't need it, but you can type numbers. But faster. the thing is, is that even just for the ergonomics of not having the number pad there is worth getting rid of it, right? Because Probably. if if sure. you have a full-size keyboard and you have a mouse next to your full-size keyboard, your right arm, look at the angle of where your right arm is and tell me about shoulder pain and neck pain and like wrist pain and tennis elbow from typing all day. Like just, I cannot harp on this enough. <laughs> get rid of your, your 10 key keyboards. Get the, at least something 10 keyless. People can get kind of crazy and go like 75% or 60% or whatever, but at least, at least, at least go 10 keyless. You don't need anything bigger than that. Yeah, I'm starting, unless I was an accountant, I'm because you can also get, if you are an accountant, you can get a 10 keyless keyboard and then get a get number pad. pad and put it on the left. Put it on the left. And when you need the number pad, pop it in. Boom. You can do that too. Or if you really are like a business type person, you're just always using the number pad like it's a calculator. And then you type occasionally, do the numbers, type occasionally, do the numbers, and you're probably, I don't know, you there's don't, ways to you fix it. You don't need number pad, guys. We're going to do a whole episode just on ergos, and I think that talking about... That's going to be mostly you talking, because I have I the think worst keyboards, ergos. But I think keyboards are going to be a big part of that. So, those are good picks, Greg. I'm glad you came prepared this week. Thank you. Can we, I can we make did. this a habit? Can we keep this going next week? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. We'll see. So I like, I I like the I like the, um, I like making you wonder. Oh, okay. Well, that yeah, that actually is kind of fun. <laughs> All right, so pick? My, my pick this week um, is actually a book. It's not brand new or anything. It's actually been out for a while. Um, but I was I thought of this book because the author, her name is Susan Cain. She was on Tim Ferriss' podcast recently. Um, so she wrote a book a few years ago called, let me bring up the actual title of this so I read this correctly. She wrote a book called Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. came out in 2013. Um, I remember reading this book, I think about three years ago, and it literally changed my life because as somebody who is probably very much on the classic introvert part of the spectrum, um, I I really had no concept or understanding of what that meant. And so when I did classic introvert things like, oh, I don't want to go outside and talk to people today. I just want to stay in here and read a book. That historically made me feel 
like a weirdo and that I was strange and that I was somehow not a normal person because I behaved that way. And then I read this book and I went, wait, what? That's okay. It's probably like 50% of people. To be like that. Yeah. That's how it's it's a good thing for me to be like that. Uh, So yeah, this is for me personally is a life-changing book. Um, I am hoping that some people out there will pick this up and and maybe it'll give you some insight on that. But it's not just for people who are introverted. It actually uses a lot of examples of the differences between how introverts operate and how extroverts operate uh, to give you a good understanding. So if you're a person who feels like someone who is introverted or if you work with people that are introverted, I think it's worth reading this book. So we'll have a link in the show notes for it. And it's a book called Quiet by Susan Cain. It's a big old Q on the front of it. I saw it at Costco a couple of weeks ago. So it, it's, it's pretty common. It should be easy to pick up. Cool. So go check that out. Greg, where can people find you on the internet? Hiding. Hiding <laughs> in the corners. You cannot hide on the internet, <laughs> Greg. I'm at Greg Gorski, but I don't think I've checked Twitter in, oh, even now in a while. Just, just add him, guys. Just add him, fun. Just add him uh, the hand wave emoji. Totally. Will you, will you uh, make a commitment to answer people if they at you? If I see a notification from Twitter and someone adds me, then sure, yeah. You heard it here first, guys. You heard it here first. Greg will, Greg will respond to you. So Greg is at Gregorski. I'm at Al Park. You can at me as well. The show is at a public function. We usually tweet there whenever a new episode comes up. Uh, so follow us there. You can add us there. I actually run that account, so... You can ask me questions and give us feedback there. You can also email us, hello at publicfunction.show. The website will eventually be moved over, but as of right now, we are at publicfunction.fireside.fm. All the episodes, all the show notes, all the good stuff is there. So go check us out there. Greg, you got anything else to follow up us on? Follow no. up us, follow us up on anything, anything fun? Anything else going on? No, not that I know of. Cool. Greg. See you next week. See you next week. that movie, Greg? Ace Ventura. Pet Detective. He didn't do that in The Mask, too, did he? I feel like there was carryover in between those characters. I mean, I think he did similar role. I think he was just playing himself. He's just, he's just him. I think that people really underestimate the accomplishment that Jim Carrey was one of the only white people on In Living Color back in the day when it was on. I think people downplay that way too much and don't think about that in his legacy. So shout out to Jim Carrey. Hmm. I did not know that. Well, he was, I mean, he he played some very problematic characters on that show, but he was, uh, what, Fire Marshal Bill? He came and shut the party down.
mm. um, among other characters. But yeah, he was on the show. He had some that gives him street cred. I feel like that gives him some credibility amongst audiences, big and small. Maybe we should ask them. We totally should ask them. Greg, what are you looking up right now? Are you are you making some notes? No, I'm looking at keyboards. What kind of keyboards? I was just wondering why Ducky doesn't make a 70%. A 75%? Whatever. The 75% is actually a relatively new layout. There aren't that many out there that do them. I know Vortex makes one. That's the one that I'm interested in potentially acquiring. I'll probably pick that one up shortly here. The Vortex Gear Racer? Race. Race 3. Race 3. It's It kind of loses some... Something in translation a couple of times. But yeah, I think it shows up on Amazon as Vortex Gear. I think they're known worldwide. Yeah, Vort- it's just Vortex. Vortex Gear Race 3, 75%. Yeah. The thing about that one is that it's actually built very well. It has a nice aluminum case, very low profile sides, uh, really good keycap set that comes with it. But they made this mistake of making the escape key and the delete key one and a half unit size instead of one unit size, which is wild because when you buy keycaps and you buy keycap sets, is extremely rare to have a keycap set that has those size keys on the function row like that. So it becomes very hard to buy new keycap sets. Typically people will just buy the appropriately sized keycap in like a blank, like a blank white one or a blank black one, just put them up there. But yeah, that's really unfortunate. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy keyboards that have an on-standard keys anymore. Oh yeah, Mister uh, Corsair keyboard owner. I bought two of them with non-standard. And you keys. found out the hard way, right? Yeah. Which one were the ones that were non-standard? The uh, it was the Corsair and the Mionix. But it was the spacebar, or not the spacebar, the shift oh, keys, yeah, which was, is actual keys. It was the control, control area keys. The bottom know. row. They had all all of the actual keys themselves, right? But they just made them weird sizes. They were weird sizes, yeah. That's fun. That's fun. Standardize mm-hmm. everything, guys. Don't do proprietary stuff. Everything should be the same. But it doesn't it doesn't look right. It do, you're right, it doesn't look right. So yeah, like you look at some of these keyboards and they have like a really crazy space between escape and F one. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Where you could have a double Oh, that's the sound of a Mac aluminium. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Well, well, that's that. a standard uh, tenkulous layout, though, is to have the spacing in the top in between the escape and the F1 key and then groups of five F keys. That's that's a standard tenkulous layout. Yeah, but if I'm Johnny, I'm like, there's room for that key to be wider. <laughs> it makes a, a double wide escape key or just sure. gets rid of it altogether like you oh. did on the MacBooks. Yeah, he's like, just get rid of it and put like a something. I don't know. Then all the Vim users cry out and scream in pain. Why? Why have you forsaken us? I don't think he even knows that Vim. I don't. There's no way on this planet Earth that Johnny Ive knows what Vim is. None whatsoever. Yeah. Fun times. (laughs) I was just wondering who was outside. Oh, there's a lot of people outside. Yeah, my neighborhood is very. There's, uh, I think there's some construction going on uh, on the end of the street. There was like a big, big old flatbed trying to back its way into some driveway or something. It was a mess. I had to go around. It was a mess. 
Yeah, they're they're redoing the roads. Oh yeah, I saw that. Tax dollars at work. Yeah. Are you a fan of this? Did you did you want this as a person who lives here and pays taxes? Are you like, yes, give me new roads? I mean, I I never felt like the roads were a problem. But there are a lot of extra people that drive on these roads. Extra people. <laughs> like I mean, me? it's a popular it's a popular area. So a lot of people who don't live here park and drive on these side streets. Oh, heaven forbid those people that don't live here. Got to keep them out, Greg. Maybe you should, uh, should uh, build a wall. No, I just, I'm just saying maybe don't build a residential area right next to a very popular street. That's probably true. That's, but that's what I'm saying. But if, I mean, if you have a crisis, then you got you to gotta build a wall. It's the only way to solve the crisis. No, I don't, I don't think that would work. I, I agree with you 100%, Greg. 